The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. It was a huge strain. I mean, every night for weeks on end, there was stuff in the press. Mm -hmm. And we never understood how it was getting there. I'd be doing interviews with members of the cabinet here in this building. Mm -hmm. And we had to secrete them downstairs. They would do the interview and off they would go. And then before we'd know it, thinking it would be in the newspapers or on news night in the mm-hmm. evening. And we mm-hmm. couldn't understand what was happening, where it got to. I have my suspicion. Hello, I'm Kevin Poltron, and today is The Hearing Podcast. We're talking to Gerald Shamash from his own offices at Edwards Duthie Shamash. Gerald talks to us about his journey from Manchester down to London, where he was encouraged by his wife and father-in-law into taking up a career in law. Although you might not know the name Gerald Shamash, I think you'll recognise him for his many appearances, both on the steps of number 10, but also from the numerous courtrooms and news bulletins you will have seen him in. The Hearing. Gerald, thank you very much for making some time out of your ridiculously busy schedule uh, to spend some time with us today. We're going to talk about you and your life and your career. How narcissistic is that? <laughs> well, we'll see how, we'll see how narcissistic. Um, but let's start us off with... Uh, what was life like uh, for young Gerald? Um, you're you're hailed from Manchester, is that right? I am from Manchester, yes. Uh, and how did you end up there, growing up there? Well, my parents, are, I was born there. I'm born and bred in Manchester. Uh, my parents originally came from... I'm a sort of slightly odd beast because my father was born in 1882 um, and I was a very, very late thought. Wow. And I appeared on the scene in 1947. A thought, not uh, a mistake. Yeah, yeah a very okay. nice mistake. I was the third of three... Uh, full siblings um, and my dad was in the textile industry in Manchester and became what's known as a textile broker which is selling large quantities of cloth here there and everywhere yeah um, and I, we moved to London in 1965 when my uh, brother-in-law uh, got elected to Parliament sadly he died last week oh. um, age 96 and there's a tribute paid to him in the House of Lords because he was a member of Parliament National Underline uh, for 37 years and then was elevated to the House of Lords. A chap was called Bob Sheldon. Yeah. And he was originally a Shamash, and he was my surname, and he changed his name. So there we are. That's Manchester. Wow. And then I was brought up in Manchester. I'm utterly passionate Manchester United fan. I'm currently chairman of the Manchester United Supporters Trust. Yes. Which you might have seen. Yeah. And that occupies a lot of my thinking time, emotional time, and spare time, <laughs> much, much to my wife's chagrin. But actually, yes, gradually my family have come used to the idea of uh, But And is there, is there an element of mixing business and pleasure with that? Well, there is a bit. I mean, one thing about sort of, uh, certainly the Labour Party, and for whom I, I'm sure you'll come to in a minute, but there are a lot of people in the Labour Party who have football clubs, and you kind of make a connection um, with them. I mean, there's some kind of very well-known ones. I mean, Alistair Campbell, who I know. A previous um, guest. Who's a, a previous, I, I gather, a previous guest. And I can remember going up with Alistair, who's a passionate Burnley mm-hmm. fan, driving up when Manchester United, when Burnley <laughs> finally got promoted to the Premiership some years ago. And we were driving up to Manchester in, in the very large old car I had at the time and on the way up I was approaching Burnley to the turf moor up in, in the, it was a lovely trip and we got there and these phones were ringing mm. and on Alistair's phones were going I was driving and Alistair's phone was going yeah 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 I'll see you later yeah fine I'll come meet you and he was having a sort of conversation about his tickets because he was very friendly with Sir Alex Ferguson who was mm. still the manager at the time 
Anyway, just to make life even more impossible, Burnley won, <laughs> which was not easy to take, and not least to have to drive all the way back in the night with Alistair crowing. All the way back. And I can remember very vividly on the way back, the phone kept going, and there were all these extremely well-known football managers phoning. Ah, you did it! How the hell did you manage it? This is amazing. And I can remember Alistair was driving because we shared the driving on the way back. And I said, "God, see, Alistair." can't drive and be on the phone oh right so we swapped it and all the way down was this crowing former spin doctor enjoying himself yeah anyway yeah so i think he enjoyed himself with us as well but maybe it's not oh, such a memorable a, story for him, I, I, so. yeah I, I, i've known him a long time and I, i've done some work for him over the years yeah well phone hacking and uh, like i say you, we keep saying we're going to come on to it we'll come on to it very shortly um but the uh, the starts of your career was not Obvious, uh, and you've already mentioned your uh, your wife, uh, yeah. partner, um, wife. wife no, thank no, you. we are married. Um, 50, nearly fifty years. Who's a lawyer? She is. And uh, albeit a uh, slightly different domain, family law and, and adoption and and uh, various things. Um, but you weren't a lawyer to start out with. No, you were going down the route of dentistry. I think I was. That's exactly right. And uh, I mean, completely mad, really. Um, <laughs> I don't know, there's lots I, of no, wealthy dentists. I had this sort no. of mistaken view. I didn't have any sort of... St- I, I, I didn't want to get into the family business. There, my nephew is. Um, and I was sort of got this idea that we had a relative who was a dentist. Mm. And he'd sort of been very prosperous. I mean, he'd prospered greatly from this. And I was quite good with my hands. And I can remember going to do an interview at King's College Dental School. Mm. And you go along and you do these interviews. And they give you a cube of beeswax and they give you a long strip of wire like imagine a metal a metal um a coat hanger mm. and they cover it in wax and they say right okay we want to see whether you've got any manual, manual dexterity because you can't use your hands you don't be much of a dentist so that the the beeswax they ask you to cut into a pyramid shape and the other one they ask you to bend into whatever shakram it was Anyway, I, 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 I was offered a place, Julie, and I was due to go, and I thought, I suddenly realised, actually, do I really want to spend the rest of my life, great respect to wonderful dentist friends mm-hmm. I've got, spending my life looking down people's throats, and I decided not. Um, and I changed, and I ended up, in those days when you move from, if you're doing a science subject to do art subjects, mm-hmm. it was much more difficult. So I ended up going to the University of Surrey, which was a crossover degree between arts and, and I moved on from there. And it's done, I then got involved very much in South African politics, really, because I had a girlfriend at the time who was um, doing teacher training in Oxford. And I used to play football for the first university, first 11. And I used to commute between the University of Surrey and Oxford. So I had a wonderful time. I didn't have the trials and tribulations of having to work through an Oxford degree. Um, uh, and I got into politics that way, in terms of South African politics. Mm. And uh, that relationship stopped, and I met my wife right at the end of 1969. And I was that time, kind of, your question was about how to get into law, and I had no idea what I was going to do. And Naomi was right, my wife's Naomi Angel. She had just begun, right at the very beginning of the start of the Law Centre movement, in at North London, at North sorry, North Kensington Law Centre, mm. and she was. Uh, I don't even hang on a minute. This is, I never thought about it. this. Is actually mixing politics and mm. law, 
and I got into this and she was then moved on from North Kensington to work for quite a, um, there was an advice centre there run by a woman called Ronnie Laslett and Naomi then went to work for Camden Law Centre and I worked for West Hampstead Law Centre and then I started on the journey of qualifying. Um, I found the exams not as easy as they should have been and mm. I had to do one or two retakes and I ended up qualifying in 1976. Gosh. And, uh, a long time ago. Uh, and I think that relationship between law and politics has really, that, that, that's really the story of the, your life. That's it, the thread that's it is in a way. flowed through all the way through it. Yeah, I think probably it, it was politics and then the law because I really had a sort of passionate ambition to get into Parliament. But you have to start low, very low. Mm. And I tried to become councillor in... Um, in Westminster, which is where my mother was living at the time. And I remember standing in some of the wards, a ward in Lancaster Gate Ward, with now a very well-known politician, Alf Dubbs, Lord Dubbs. Mm. And Alf, I think, got elected there and then went on to other things. Um, and then I got involved in, in doing more work with, um, within, after I qualified. Um, and then I tried to get elected to Parliament. So I ended up getting selected for Shoreham. Uh, for the Labour Party down on the south coast and in hindsight it was a massive mistake mm. it was an extremely enjoyable mistake but it was a mistake mm. because on one side you had the sea and the other side you had <laughs> sheep and, and the fact with that, that was is that nobody knew the hell you were and I'd gone along and I'd, I'd been fortunate the very first selection conference I got to I got I was selected uh, it would be better if I'd waited my time mm. but anyway and it was a really interesting time commuting. I was then working in the temple right. for a firm called PR Kimber. And I just sort of commuted in the evenings. And they were certainly left the centre law firm. Mm. I think old Philip Kimber was, was one of the founders of the Legal Aid Scheme okay. in 1948, along yeah. with Sir Tommy Lund, um, who was then, I think, one of the uh, Secretary General of the Law Society and was the founder of that scheme. Uh, and they gave me the time and I really enjoyed it. Uh, however, if you were a Labour Party candidate in 1979, a mm. certain lady got elected in the shape of Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And I'll tell you endless anecdotes about, about that election, but there we are. Well, well feel free. I don't want to stop you. Um, but the, the, the change um, in culture between you sort of 1969 to 1979, there was a, there was a political revolution. Um, yeah, I would say uh, I wasn't around for it. I, I no, should no, have. Um, but uh, how, how so that move towards the law was it a push from politics or was it just a different way of attacking? Well, I still do. I mean, I'd, I'd qualified in seventy six. So I had three years by the seventy nine election. Um, I set up my firm Steel and Shamash with my uh, with a, a partner Elaine Steele. And Elaine and Naomi were in an articles together at Lawford & Co, which is a very well-known left-of-centre firm. And they, uh, based in the Grey's Inn, and Elaine and I got to Naomi and put, put Elaine and I together. She was, she'd been the General Secretary of the Writers Guild, and I was doing what I was doing. And we, there was a lot of personal injury work, mm -hmm. and we thought we'd get together. And we bought over a practice, I did look at make a go of it, and we bought a practice called Samanovitz & Brown. The Samanovich was a very long name, and it lasted six months, and we changed it to Steel and Chamash. And mm. um, we bought this practice um, in, well, I think, about £7,500, I think, can you imagine? Wow. In Waterloo, mm. um, in 1981. It started on the 27th of January 1981. 
Um, and the rest, as they say, the firm began to grow. Uh, we were both very committed to to using our political, uh, Lame was an active member of the Labour Party, and we actually wanted to use our politics to inform the sort of work that we were doing. Mm. And we came up with, at one point, with a really kitsch idea of calling the firm Red Law, which is <laughs> too ridiculous for words in hindsight. But, I mean, now, probably, you've got to say Red Law, there'd be a million people, you know, riding over the hill wanting to kill you for pinching uh, their name. But, uh, yeah. We were called Steel and Shamash until June last year. And, and this is where we are now. Is that have you moved offices since then? Or we no. We happen, what happened was is that we were next door until about 1990, mm. and we borrowed. This used to be this building we're in now, which we own, used to be Jewhurst the Butchers, okay. and it used to be one of the central London training schools. Ah. And there's a lecture theatre at the top, and there used to be a butcher's shop downstairs. Uh, and when we acquired this. Uh, the free we, we buried it and had a lease of the top two floors and then people stopped eating meat for some reason not even stop eating that's wrong but mm. reduced the amount and Zuhurst mm. decided to sell off all their shops so in 9192 we bought a freehold of this uh, this building and we then started to convert um, and we've been here since then and since for the building and then how many people have you got here now uh, well, we're part of about 140. Gosh. There are about, and at the moment, you've got us a time where we're refurbishing, mm. and uh, there are probably going to be about 40 people here, maybe more. Mm. We've certainly got, I mean, these days, there's a lot of hot desking, there's a lot of homeworking. Yeah. We're very keen on people feeling they can have flexible working, um, and that's how they're mm. operating. And we have offices in Wanstead, out in Essex, in Ilford, which is mm. probably the biggest office. And also in Stratford, which is a brand new office, a bit like this one. But this will be the main core for central London. And and how important uh, and how much responsibility is there in having your name attached? Because uh, it's, it's it's reasonably rare these days for for people to still have the very American system of sort of named partners like we we had way back well, when. Well, Mr. Linklater's well, is probably good rest. Well, Waterhouse. Gone, um, but you see, Phil Fisher Waterhouse, Mr. Mm-hmm. Waterhouse, were three brothers. One was Waterhouse was an architect, one was Waterhouse's sister, and I think there's one other. And mm. in the end, you have to have a name, don't you? You have to have a name. You have to have a name somewhere. And it was a discussion when we merged about what we were going to call mm. call ourselves, and we wanted to keep the, the thing together. I, I suppose the only time, it's never really occurred to me, except once about, about far enough, about six months ago, and one of our, I mean, this is not meant to sound self-aggrandizement or anyway, it really isn't given the answer to your question, but we had a member of staff here who was having very serious problems uh, domestically and the worst of it, and I was really keen to help her, and we were all been very keen at touch wood we have done. Mm. And she came to see me, and we sat down for a bit, and I gave her some advice, and she said, it's really nice, it's very rare that you get somebody whose name's a brother across the door mm. to give you that sort of help. Yeah. And it never occurred to me to that moment that that's how you're sometimes perceived. Because mm. I'm, I'm not that sort of person. Mm. I just, you know, muck in with everybody who ever is. I think I do. You go and ask my staff, they might think I'm a bigger yeah. sailor of what's it. That's the second part of this uh, conversation. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm sure that is Kevin. You know, <laughs> um, but but well, you mentioned people being surprised by you giving the advice, but the sort of work that the firm, the firms that you've been involved in have been doing, you've, you've already said it's kind of, uh, left of centre, but we're talking about uh, public work typically. Um, and I know that you've had a strong commitment to legal aid. Very much so. 
all the way through. And I'm, I'm curious to know really what your take is now on the current position of legal aid, which seems to be almost on its last legs. Um, well, I desperately hope not. And I mean, I, I, whether this Conservative government, I mean, they've just given £50 million of announced today mm. to, to give to criminal legal aid. It is absolutely a drop in the ocean. Yeah. I think it's, what, 15, 20 years since there's been an increase in legal aid yeah. uh, for criminal lawyers. The system is collapsing on its feet. And it's really tragic watching it. And I, I, I can't say in all consciousness that it's totally the Conservative government's fault. It's not. Mm. Because in the past, previous Labour governments have sort of danced to the tune of the Chancellor, yeah. who actually wanted to cut back. And some people who I'm personally very friendly with and know really well have been the ministers over the years for legal aid. And, you know, the mm. Chancellor, most of that time, was Gordon Brown, would say, we need to cut back. And they cut back. And it, it's mm. been awful. The LASBO and the cutback of the eligibility to legal aid is just reduced. Mm. But we, the firm as a whole, remain committed. We've got a lot of legal aid that we do it here in the building, a lot of care work, a lot of housing work, mm. a lot of crime. Um, we've got a, a, a fantastic, I believe anyway, court of protection team, mm. uh, which is nearly all legal aid work. Um, and there are other areas I can't immediately think of, but we remain committed to it. And, yeah. and you know. We may we won't be last man standing, but we're going to be one of the very few. We mm. must be one of the bigger legal aid firms in central London, mm. given what we do. There are bigger, obviously, much bigger ones than us, but we're one of the few. And how do you think you've managed to hold on? Is there is there a secret to success, or is it just the a secret case of success? Is not and... feeling your overdraft is going to sort of <laughs> make you jump off the top of a yeah. a, 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 of the shard skyscraper. Mm. Um, it, it, it's very tough mm. and uh, it's tough in a sense of, so, I mean one thing we're very proud of that we share, we, one of the rooms that we let out in this building is the Legal Aid Practitioners Group uh, and they live here mm. they're really nice, very dedicated bunch of people um, how we've been able to hang on uh, at times it's, it has a joke, joking apart, it's actually been very tough mm. because the bureaucracy behind actually processing it yeah. You know, the idea that, you know, they bring in systems that we which require computers, we've got to provide the computers. Mm. Not, we don't get any grants from mm. the Legal Aid Board. I mean, it's just really tough. It's really, and all we have endless audits to check that we're not working. Rightly so, in a way, mm. that people have abused the system in the past. Mm. But when you get a firm like us, who've had audit after audit after audit, which is successful, why do we have to, you know, we want a soft audit, mm. and it's, a, it's enormously painful doing this. Mm. But anyway. Yeah, well, and, and well, you, back to you. Well, actually, you, just before I do, mm. I can just ask you, one of the things I've been asking, what I say, one of the things about legal aid is you ought not to be interviewing me. You ought to be interviewing Sandra out there, who is our receptionist, because Sandra's the person mm. who takes the phone call from somebody who's about to be evicted. Mm. And she's the person who said... I'm really sorry we can't take you on because we're full up. And they say, but mm. I'm going to be made homeless tomorrow morning. Yeah. And, you know, Sandra will do the best she can to see there's somebody that can help. Sometimes we just cannot do it. Mm. And it's, it's it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And it's it, we shouldn't be in that situation. Yes, you could blame the person for leaving it to the last minute. But often people are in complete denial about what's about to happen to them. Yeah. And they, you know, people do that whether it's paying a parking fine and leave it to the last minute, but at least when it's your home mm. and you've got kids and you make, um, you know, we're forever implying for injunctions to try and stop people being made homeless to the local authorities. Mm. It's really tough. It's really tough. 
that we, we are very committed to it. Yeah, well, uh, and two things I think on the back of that. One is I'm going to talk about you in a moment moving, because your practice has moved away from sort of legal Me aid. Me personally. For, yeah, um, yeah no, for various sure. reasons. But just, you, you've painted a, um, a, a realistic, but unfortunately quite bleak picture. Is there a real issue now of inspiring and bringing through new sort of uh, junior practitioners into legal aid type work? Well, we do. And if I was to take you downstairs to meet some of the younger members of Start, they are committed to it. But it is very difficult mm. to this day. You've got to see this in the context of tuition fees. Mm the context of actually fees to qualify in your system. Oh, absolutely. So by the time you get to a point, you could have debts of 30 or 40,000 pounds. Now, if yeah. you go and work for the city firms, they'll either have sponsored you mm. through your, uh, your training contract, mm. or the salary you get at the end, you'll be able to pay off your training contract with a couple of... Now, with a firm like us, where we're paying our paralegals in you know, 21, 22, mm. 3,000 pounds a year, um, it's very, very tough. So you've either got to come from the, the bank of mum and dad to get through there, which affects the kind of people that you're recruiting to want to do this sort of work. And it's it's mm. it's not easy, but but all those people who are doing this sort of work are committed to it. Mm. Yeah. And and it, it's, a, it's a credit to them that they want to do it. Um, but there is still an oversupply in some ways of people wanting to do training contracts or doing paralegal stuff. So touch wood, we've been reasonably mm. fortunate, and the firm's got a uh, hope a reasonable reputation that they want to come here. Absolutely, and and uh, but, but I say but back to you and uh, and your own career started off as a bit of a, a a mixed bag, a sort of general practice, but I think from my, from just reading about you, circumstances has really about dictated. Me, I know well, maybe we'll see. Um, uh, circumstances really dictated which direction your career has moved into. Um, did, was, was there any planning to it, or was it just sort of opportunity as and when it came along? I, I, uh, you mean about the, power, the, the sort of work I'm doing now, how I got into the late party? Kind of all the way through. Um, well, I mean, what I suppose one advantage is, in a sense, is about running a practice that we were in Waterloo, because mm. Elaine was doing a lot of the um, playwrights, theatres, ah. publishers, producers sort of work. Okay. And she went, she left in 1988, uh, and uh, so I became very much a generalist over mm. the years, and I mean, I've done pretty much most areas of law, which is actually very good and very useful. And then in about 1983, I, I um, got involved in, in my first, um, having been in the election in 79, and uh, being involved in the Labour Labour Party, and I'd stood for, for being a councillor. So I did become a councillor in Barnet, mm. I think it was 86 to 94, I think. Um, I both get the years a bit mixed up, but anyway. Um, and I remember getting involved in um, uh, a very big injunction in 1983, which saw, for Jeremy Corbyn in fact, was the first big um, Labour Party issue I did. And mm. He hadn't been elected, but it was to do with a, an election address that contained a full statement about him. And we got that stopped, and it was an, it got an injunction, stopped the delivery of election addresses and the rest of it. And then I decided to do some property work for them. Uh, and I got to know the uh, through Elaine, in fact, um, Elaine Steele. <coughs> I got to know about uh, some of the property stuff, um, mm. and then it went from there. But uh, electoral law is a very niche area. It's extremely. Niche. Um, so, so was there not? Were you not slightly daunted? This is a. 
This is well, the election it's, uh, well, news. It's, um, I, I, it's the, the election law is absolutely. I mean, there's very few of us who really call ourselves genuinely election mm. laws. Um, but back I, in 1983, that would probably be the last thing that would be on your CV. Well, it, it would have been, but it, it what, well, I mean, the case I've just mentioned, that was an election law, it was mm. about Section 106, which is the kind of libel section. I put it crudely in people listening to this. What that's and for my benefit as well. Yeah, it's when you make a false statement about a personal character, somebody's personal character or conduct. Mm. Um, and that, that uh, in terms of where we are with them, um, I think what it helped was that I'd stood for election and failed a few times, both in local government and in Parliament. Mm. And I always wondered what was what was all the legislation behind mm-hmm. this? What was this? And I decided at some point I ought to find out about this out of curiosity. Mm. And uh, I, as time moved on, I got involved with with the party. And as a very dear a friend who's um, somebody who's now a very dear friend of mine, um, John Brackens, who gave me a piece of work. And what, what happened was, I think it was 1990, 1990, 89, 90, I think. I can't remember the exact year. Yeah. I was asked to do something. It was linked to election law. And I'd never done it properly, apart from that. So I had a go at it. And we were successful. Mm. So they gave me another one. And I was successful. So in a sense, the party helped me build up my experience mm. and therefore I became more useful to them mm. and it was a kind of gradual osmotic process yeah. and I remember saying to John one day he said, oh, I said I've been incredibly lucky about all this you know how the doors have been opened and he said Gerald never forget the doors never open by themselves there's somebody else opening the door behind you and I've never forgotten that mm. and he's still a dear friend and I sit next to him at football and I see him <laughs> from time to time and it, and what happened was that's exactly what happened and in yeah. 92 I got more and more experience I mean, mm. had some very big cases over the years and uh, not always just election law because I do a whole range of work for the party yeah I have done over the years uh, but, but it's been a huge huge privilege to do it and, and certainly, well, certainly some of the work that you've been involved in has been incredibly high profile. I, I remember, I was, again, just uh, reading a little bit about you. Um, you're kind of the, one of the more recognised faces from various scandals or, uh, or issues over the last probably two, three decades. I'm completely blameless. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Scandal. You're usually the one uh, sort of the crowds yeah. or uh, sort no, of blocking sure. the, the press. Um, <laughs> but... but Working for the Labour Party, you've also had some issues where you've worked for members of the party individually. Yes. Um, and, and in some ways, in a way that there may even be a certain conflict, not necessarily a legal conflict, but certainly a conflict in terms of who you're representing. Is it the party? Is it the politician? Uh, I think in particular around the expenses scandal. Um, well, that, yeah, that followed after the cash runner stuff, which you might come on to, I don't know, at that point. Well, you, you, let's start with that then. Um, well, no, no, that was different. I mean, was well, well, talk us through it, because it's not on my list. <laughs> well, I'm surprised, actually. I mean, that was certainly at the time far more... This was about the whole business about cash for peerages. Oh, right. Uh, which was when Tony Blair, there were in 2005, mm. it was discovered or definitely pushed to the press that there were a number of people who'd given very, very big donations to the Labour Party, running mm. into tens of millions. And uh, there was there was then a proposal, a suggestion that they were all going to be ennobled and put into the House of Lords, uh, and it then became a massive police investigation right. that lasted a year and a half, uh, and it was a, a innovating, very exciting time, 
uh, were the police officers at number 10 recognised me. And you know, I didn't even have to bother showing a pass after a while. I'd just wander in and smile at them and then let me go in. Um, and it was an extraordinary time. Mm. It really was. Uh, and this, uh, you know, there wasn't in a sense a conflict there. Because initially I was representing most people, but not the PM, not Tony mm. at the time. Um, and certainly some of the senior people. And then they got to a point where the police started getting very heavy and they had a dawn raid on the then director of government, Ruth Turner, on her house. Gosh. And it was, that was the point where, quite rightly, that she had to be represented by a separate firm. But I represented everybody else um, who was serious. And it was a, a massive, a massive thing. And I mean, it was to be in and out of number 10. I was sort of pinched myself that they will ever go there again. And uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, it does wait at some point that will happen again. Mm. But it was. Mm. It was a str- it was a huge strain. I mean, every night for weeks on end, there was stuff in the press, mm-hmm. and we never understood how it was getting there. I'd be doing interviews with police on with uh, members of the cabinet here in this building, mm-hmm. and we had to secrete them downstairs. Yeah. They would do the interview, and off they would go. And then before we'd know, the blinking thing would be in the newspapers or on news night in mm-hmm. the evening, and we mm-hmm. couldn't understand what was happening, where it got to. I had my suspicions, but. Uh, but there were some really fun times about that. I can say, it's, 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 there's lots of... Um, I'll, tell, I'll tell you one anecdote, which yeah. is quite funny. You've probably seen many times when you see all the journalists outside at number 10 already with their flashlights. And I'd gone along to do um, a... Um, uh, well, I, did, I see somebody inside number 10. And I was walking back out the corridor to go out the front door and you could see underneath the crack of the door number 10 all these flashlights and suddenly this voice comes up Gerald stop and I turn around why was that you can't go out the front door so why not they'll, they'll, they'll take your photograph and they wonder what the hell you're doing here <laughs> so I turn around and walk back and walk straight bang into Tony Blair and, and she said ah oh, Gerald yes uh, yes well um, yeah, can I introduce you? This is the T-shirt, Bertie Ahern. So I'm sitting here talking, thinking, what am I doing here? Then obviously this was part of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. So there was another back way into number 10. So off I trotted out the back to the cabinet office and whatever. I mean, anyway. But, it was, but, it but was that, that must have happened an awful lot. Because I think you were, you, were, you were in or around Labour HQ at the time, but for the 97 election as well, you were mm-hmm. heavily involved in that. Yeah, certainly. And... and like, what, what, what's the, what, what can that be like? Because that was very memorably for people just watching on oh, the TV. Oh, that was... I mean, in, in terms of... The, I mean, it sends goosebumps even now, really. Um, and that was a really fascinating period of time. Absolutely fascinating. Um, we were then at Millbank. And um, as you know, Labour won a massive majority in May. But just before that, those three or four weeks before, it was a time when there was a whole new Labour in New Britain. And there was a. I'll tell you one thing. There was a. Uh, there was a whole. There was a, a, a. There was a group of people who tried to call themselves New Labour, and they were basically passing off or trying to suggest that they were the Labour Party, but quite New Labour. And I'd thought about this for some months beforehand, thinking, oh, man, what are we going to do about this? You know, we've got to think about it. And this started, and I got. I got this phone call from now. Lord Alexander Derry Irvin, who mm. was, became the Lord Chancellor, yeah. he said, Gerald, I want to see you tomorrow morning. You've got to come, we've got to do something about this. Can you be here in the morning? I said, oh, What time? 
He said, oh, can you be at seven in the morning? I thought, oh, God, seven in the morning. I said, get up. And I get there. And at Millbank, they had a tiny little, um, there's a floor, lots of floors in Millbank Town, mm-hmm. but there was a sort of subfloor. And I go into this room. So come on, Joe, we come into this room. It's a tiny little room. I'm sitting talking to Derry. Five seconds later, in walks Tony Blair, followed by Gordon Brown. I'm sat there with these three thinking, what is this? <laughs> so anyway, I said to Derry, I'm just not sure we're going to win this. He said, I just, you've got to try and do the best you can. He said, I'll have a bet. I said, okay, I'll have a bet with you. He said, I'll tell you, buy you, you're going to buy me the best bottle of wine you can, or you, i buy you the best bottle of wine. So off we go to court. And we then went to council, and mm-hmm. uh, we, we were successful. And we got the injunction. And that stopped New Labour, New Britain's a lot of work uh, to stop that going out. Um, uh, it was just, uh, mm. I, I can remember certainly just the, the kind of general feeling in, in Labour Party HQ about the way that there were times when it was obvious that we were going to win, mm. but there was a feeling that we couldn't take anything for granted. Mm. And I remember, well, just the last minute there was a putting out more and more leaflets, spending hundreds of thousands of pounds, mm. which would come, turned out not to be necessary. Mm. And then we, what happened then, we were sort of, the election happened, Labour won the fantastic victory, and that fantastic May morning, 1st of May 1997, came, walking across the bridge, at sort of whenever it was, four or five in the morning, when it was obvious we'd won. And there were, there were sort of, I remember one of somebody now, um, Baroness Sally Morgan saying goodness who's that person what's the name of that person is our new MP and said I remember now yes he was doing he or she was doing the photocopying at number 10 <laughs> um, and it was it was that kind of thing it was such an overwhelming majority mm. and it was a it's a fabulous period and do you think we're going to see that again I hope so very much hope so do you think that... Um, I, I don't want to go to my grave not having seen a Labour government again. I really don't. Mm. So I'm either planning to make sure we win the next election, whoever our new leader is, or I've got to stay on the planet for a bit longer. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's going to be good news. take your pick. I'm sure that'll be good news for a lot of your clients. Um, <laughs> Maybe and, not, and, I don't know. And did you find yourself, uh, professionally speaking, did you find yourself busier uh, during a Labour government, or did actually the workload drop off a little bit? Well, not really, because very shortly after the election, they became involved in one of the biggest election expense cases mm-hmm. to do with Fiona Jones, who's mm-hmm. the MP for Newark, yeah. uh, which was a very big case indeed, which resulted in an extraordinary case mm-hmm. where there was an allegation that she'd exceeded her election mm-hmm. expenses. We had a trial in Nottingham, uh, literally in front of the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah. Uh, we, I lived with my two or three very eminent barristers, uh, Ed Fitzgerald of Doughty Street QC, Gavin Miller QC mm. of Matrix, Roy Amlodge, who's then head of the bar. Um, we lived in this lovely hotel called Langar Hall Hotel. What I really remember about that was 1999 was a magical year if you were a Manchester United because <laughs> that was the year we did the travel. Oh, yes. And so we would... They would get the barristers get up really early, and so I realised how hard barristers were. They would get up about four or five, five or six in the morning, and start preparing for the day. And I would meet them for breakfast. It ended incredibly sadly that case. And what what unusually, the, we had this trial in Nottingham, and she was found guilty. Mm. 
And the election law at the time was that if immediately the, the words guilty came out of the mouth of the judge, the seat disappeared. Right. The parliamentary seat disappeared. She was no longer the member of parliament who knew it. And we appealed this. And it was plainly obvious. And the, play, the, the appeal was successful. It was plainly obvious that if somebody had appealed it was successful, that she should have the right to go back, to mm. receive back. Yeah. And in fact, what happened was, she left the court when we won the appeal, marched off, she was quite headstrong as mm. Fiona, and she marched back to Parliament. Mm. And the then Speaker, Betty Boothroyd, yeah. Baroness Boothroyd said, sorry, you can't come, you're not a Member of Parliament. Mm. This was a bit of a nonsense. So we then made an application to the Attorney General for a declaration that actually that's not what Parliament intended in this situation. And that's what happened. So finally she went right. back and took her seat again. In 2001, she was the only person who lost her seat, parliamentary seat, in the whole of Nottingham. And it had a terrible effect on her. Mm. And she, stood, she took to drink and she was found dead in her bedroom with lots of bottles of whiskey all over the place. And it's a really sad end. Mm. And, uh, but it was a, you know, that was something you asked quite. That was one of the cases that followed on, and then anyway, there we are. Yeah, but there are lots of there are loads of other things happening at the same time, because one must remember that in this country we are we have so many different types of election, mm. tons of them. Mm. You know, you've got local government, you've got parish, you've got mayors, you've got district council, you've got mm. unity authorities, you've got northern, you've got the three now devolved parliaments, yeah. and you've got a general election, but up until this year we had European elections, so there's always something happening, yeah. um, So and there's always potential challenges happening at any given time. In that situation, are you there as a representative, or, or representing the Labour Party, one of its MPs, absolutely, but as a Labour Party, advisor yes, or yeah. are you there as an individual advisor and what's that relationship between the party well, and the individual? Usually, what, what will usually happen is that I would be and we'll come to the parliamentary expenses because that was fairly clear mm. but it, in terms of all the election stuff um, the Labour Party is the overall client mm. so if I was to represent you provided you didn't do anything that was in conflict with the Labour Party position then I would be representing you if you did mm. I'd have to say so, and it only ever happened once, I think, mm. in one of the postal votes, big, very big postal vote boards at Banana Public, where that famous case that ended up in Aston, where it was quite clear what we were being told was just not true. Mm. And we had to say to the client, terribly sorry, off you go on your own. Mm. But that's never happened since. Mm. Um, but it is, uh, you know, you're there protecting. I'm the party solicitor in this externally. I'm not the only solicitor acts for the late parties. I don't want to pretend that I am. That's mm. quite wrong. Mm. Um, but I put it clearly that I tend to do with the enemy outside rather than the enemy inside. Yeah. I do occasionally I do because I also act for the National Constitution Committee who advise them over some of the cases they've had and but you, know, you, you won't know as much as I do about my own life, obviously. But you've got, you've <laughs> I'm got, trying. I'm, I'm not, not, cases. not too bad. Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, you're doing incredibly well. Actually, thank you. Thank you. Kevin. I'm not. I'm not uh, trying to decry that. I'm a good lawyer as well. I should add. Um, so, yes, anyone's no, sure. listening. Uh, we keep touching on it. The expenses. Uh, yeah. Sure. Again, it was a, hu- a huge, um, well, spectacle. I've got to say, it was in, in many ways. It was truly horrible. Um, and I think you represented. Uh, Three MPs at the time, four, more than three MPs. Um, none of him, I think, as far as I've got, were, were successful in 
Correct. In fact, what what happened was, if I remember rightly, um, my memory's not too rusty, was that the scandal broke and uh, people were, people started contacting me and I must have seen 40 to 50 peers as well as mainly members of parliament. And I was being sent them by either from the Parliamentary Labour Party Mm. or whatever, I think. Mm. And I don't know if this is correct, I'll be a bit cautious about that, but certainly very senior members of the party, Guernsey Gerald. And I, I, I kid you not, I had to buy an extra box of Kleenex tissues because I'd have these very senior people sitting in front of me, looking at the prospect of all that they had striven for, all that they had fought for, mm. just disappear through mm. their hands. In the end, there were five, I think, five, six people in the end who... Uh, I represented mm. who finally ended up in prison and uh, it was very sad mm. and it was it was incredibly stupid mm. of them all but they they got sucked into this kind of vortex if you wish of well he's doing it mm. I'll do this why can't I claim this when I claim that and some of the things the duck house was a kind of an extremist really mm. but some of them them people I had were really daft and I can remember Particularly one client who, Elliot Morley, who was the MP for Scunthorpe. And he was due to be sentenced, and we got a lot of references from very high up, some of whom were not read out in court, but mm. the judge had in front of him. And here was a man who'd given all his life to the party, but more important, 12 years of his life to government, for mm. the people of this country. Mm. And through a decision he made, which he utterly, bitterly regretted, and the barrister standing up giving his mitigation about what sentencing would be. And I turned and I looked at him and he sat there, his head bowed with tears absolutely pouring down his face. And it was so sad. It said, what a career to come to an end like this over something that really was kind of, it just shouldn't have happened. Mm. And it was... it. And he shamed all of them in a mm. way, and it, it was terribly damaging for the, the body politic. And yeah. I, I just, you know, you get, uh, you, you, when you're going through a client, you get an established, a very close relationship with a client. I do, it's sometimes bad because I tend to be, I'm just that sort of person. I can't, unless I, you know, I get close to the client, I can't really kind of feel I'm really going to push and fight for them. That's not so right. You should always have a bit of gap. I try, but I'm not very good at it. And you get sort of passionately involved with yeah. the clients. But we also ran um, a, a kind of, whether this was actually protected by parliamentary approvals under Article 9 of the uh, Human, uh, the Bill of Rights, 1688. Mm. And uh, it, it ended up with quite a difficult time um, uh, where the then DPP, a certain secure staff, mm. made a decision that they were going to be prosecuted and raised the point that we were going to use parliamentary privilege. David Cameron, who was then the leader of the opposition, laid into Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister, and they're using the Labour Party solicitor. In fact, it was difficult after that for a while um, for me, uh, but it became obvious that once we, the criminal proceedings started, that's exactly what Mr Justice Saunders wanted to hear, mm. is whether or not mm. they were protected because these were proceedings in Parliament. Mm. And that case went up, became the Chater case, C-H-A-Y-T-R, David Chater. And it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court said, no, 
this is not this did not happen within the walls of Parliament. Yeah, and this is quite right and proper. What was interesting was the first televised Supreme Court judgment at the time. Right, all those years ago. And um, do you think? In your experience, um, a very close experience in relationship with this, do you think that Labour politicians were held to a higher expectation or a higher level of standards? Or um, because it's hard to say. You talk about an MP from <coughs> Scunthorpe doing dodgy things with their expenses and being caught out for it. Do you think that that was maybe worse because they were a Labour politician from Scunthorpe? Um, in the public no, eye and or in legal life. Well, the Tories had their, their bet noirs too. Absolutely, yeah. The but there was always maybe a... not the right thing to say. But it is. But the Tories had their problems. I mean, none. But actually, the way it worked out, I don't think any Tory went to prison. Mm. Not one of them, I don't think. And yet, and yet, Labour Party did, and mm. it was maybe that their their particular acts were rather egregious, but they just weren't. Mm. And it was a, it was a very and I I stand corrected on that. I cannot remember immediately. Mm. Whereas we had three or four, and yeah. it was it really interesting in a sense because after two or three weeks they were put into open prisons, and I remember going to see them, at the various prisons they were at, and they were coping, not easily obviously, but because they'd had this enormous experience of running surgeries, mm. they had all these members, all these the prisoners coming and helping them with their applications for, you know, benefit payments for their families and all the rest of it, you know, and the, the prison guards realised that this was, it was a very odd, yeah. odd time for them. And I, I must say, I haven't been in touch with any of them since. Mm. And I, I, you know, if any of them listen to this, I wish them well. I but mean, you know, they're not bad people. Clearly difficult to give they're up that bad people, public so. service. Um, a mixed service, but yeah. it's terribly sad. And we've, you know, uh, and there are a lot of people who weren't prosecuted, as it? There, by the grace of God, go I. And mm. that must have happened with the Tories too. Mm. Um, and liberal Democrats, I mean, wouldn't you? And, and uh, another sort of tangent brought us through to the phone hacking. Yeah. Um, and you represented then. Yes, some politicians, um, some politicians from the uh, across across the other side as well uh, in the Hamiltons. Um, yeah, uh, and some, um, I guess, friends, people who've referred work to you again, people who've, who you've come into contact with. But uh, this is where you really hit that sort of celebrity lawyer in speech marks. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Take the speech marks. Catherine, but, um, but the list is incredible, like uh, Geoffrey Archer, I think, uh, Paul Gascoigne, Alan Yentarb. The Hamilton talks about Alistair Campbell again comes up. Alex Ferguson, I believe. No, uh, no, no not, not for that one, but anything I've else. never asked for Alex Ferguson. Oh, really? I would dearly love to have asked for Alex Ferguson, I haven't. Okay, well, we'll see if we can work it out for you. <laughs> put um, your word out, put your word out, whatever you do, yes. I'm sure it's a regular listener. Um, uh, but how, how did that come about? Because again, it's a new, uh, it's not... Paul Gascoigne's been involved in the two main things, with the first one against the news of the world, and the second main thrust from the Daily Mirror. And we're about to start the same against the Sun. And I was talking to him yesterday. Mm. Um, and uh, about the Sun newspaper, Sun owning claims, and we're, we're going to be dealing with that. Uh, how did that come about? He was, funny enough, he was referred to me by Alistair Campbell. And not for the phone hacking, but for some of the other issue that he had. And we came friendly. And then there was the stuff that Mark Lewis started doing. It was mm. very friend of mine who started the the big case over was it Millie Dowler? Mm. No, it wasn't Millie Dowler. It was it followed on from the convictions of Clive Goodman 
who was then the royal correspondent about Prince William and the knee. And it, do you remember that the, there was oh, a mystery, there was a problem as how uh, how the hell found out that Prince William was having a problem with his knee, and it was because he was famous house. They then prosecuted Goodman, ah. and it then moved on from there, and it then became obvious that there were a lot of other celebrities um, in a group, and I must have had about twenty thirty. Not mm. a very well-known people, mm. um, and they were there was a thing called Operation Wheating, which worked out at Jubilee House in Putney. We would trot along there to listen to recordings or to hear what was, and, and not listen, but to, to see what documentation yeah. they have. And we brought these proceedings against against the news of the world, yeah. which led primarily because of the Millie Dowler case that saw that saw the collapse of the news of the world, mm. and. Uh, We've mentioned some other conflicts, but was there any issue then, any pushback from the Labour Party, who at the time I think were quite close with um, sort of the Murdoch? Uh, no, not not in, not as much. No issue there. No, not at all, because there were, no, not that I, these were these are not an issue. Mm. It was that people had been hacked; they shouldn't have been hacked. Oh, absolutely, the Labour Party wasn't going to have it. I mean, mm. It was as a Murdoch paper. What on earth they were doing? Mm. Some very senior people have it. I mean, Geoffrey Archer was was hacked in a yeah. terrible way. Yeah, you know, he was in prison, and he, when he was being released to go out for day release, the press were following him around. Terrible thing for him, Mary. Mm. Really awful. Mm. Um, Alice was hacked. I mean, I'm just trying to think, but but certainly Gaza was uh, Paul was definitely one of the worst, mm. and is will be one of the worst for this final round that we're going to do. Mm. And and to bring things. Uh, up to date. Uh, well, you talk about uh, now an action against the sun, but um, in terms of various other issues that you may or may not have been involved in, I don't know. But Labour Party has been plagued recently by the anti-Semitism uh, claims, as well as a leadership um, uh, contest as well. But is that something which you can see any uh, legal? Issues arising out, arising from, or is it something you've been involved in? So I, I have been involved, but I'm not acting for the party. Mm. Uh, for other individuals, but I'm not acting for the party in relation to that, and that principle has been dealing with in house. Mm. Um, that uh, it's going to be very difficult. I just hope that this is a period. As a Jewish person, I just want to see the back end of this as soon as possible. Mm. It's not been well handled. Mm. Anybody who was close to it can see there hasn't been. Anybody who was involved in it, looking back, thinking we shouldn't have done this, we should have done that. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, there will be a report from the Equality Human Rights Commission mm. in the next few months. Uh, we'll see and hope, let's see what their findings are going to be. Um, it's, it's too early to say really. And of course, there's an election campaign uh, contest uh, for the leader, the next leader of the party. Certainly, at the time of recording, there are still three horses running. Your fu- your support will be fully behind whoever that winner might be. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not going to ask you for any any names. No, no. And and to be fair, I wouldn't tell you. No. Uh, I mean, I'm not a you know, the, 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 I'm not Labour Party staff as such. I mean, I've got my own yeah. and equal. Even them, they're all individual members. They can vote whoever they want, but they wouldn't express a view. And I, I tend to take that uh, take that line, and I think it's the safest thing to do. 
And, and I'm, I'm going to draw things to a close because we've taken up far too much of your time. I'm as much as I can, you know, sort of as much as I could sit here and probably have the whole biography, um, I'll leave that for you to, uh, to to write. I was going to say your retirement, <laughs> but I suspect that Sorry. retirement is not a word that's familiar to you. How do you spell it? <laughs> um, no plans to to sit back and enjoy time. No, but I mean, I, I, no, I, the, the, we we merged in June. Uh, we're now Edward Stathis Shamash. It's been a really interesting ride so far. Um, the merger, from my, my perspective, has gone very well. Mm-hmm. Um, my new partners are very are delightful. Um, we've not, you know, it, I, I'm surprised how smoothly it has gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've not moved rooms. The, the building's been changed around me. Um, there's, it, it, it's, it's very nice not having to be so involved and heavily involved in management. And there's sort of some lot of that weight's been taken off me, and I mean the best example I can give is about about a month into the merger, there's a knock on my door, and I said, well, "I still come in, I still come in." It's just a man carrying a great big box. Are you Mr. Shamash? I said, "Yes, I am." I said, "I've got a new printer for you." I said, "What?" He said, "I've got a new printer." I don't need a new printer. <laughs> he said, "You've got a new printer." Oh, okay, all right. Then said, "Okay," and swaps the printer, and off he goes. And it made me realise that I wasn't involved in, mm. you can see whether I had enough money for it, two, whether I needed it, three, in, involved in storing it, four, arguing with my partners whether I should have a new one. And that I suddenly realised that this was actually a new, brave new world. And it's been fun. And the firm's going places. I really hope it yeah. does. I mean, we remain committed to the general ethos of what we're about, which is you know, still committed to looking after those less able to look after themselves. And... Uh, you know, doing other sorts of work that bring in other mm. times and, and certainly lots of private money coming in and trying mm. to keep that balance right is really important. Both to feel that you're doing some good to, to the people less fortunate than themselves. It's tried to say, but it's what we do believe in. Well, thank you very much. And my final piece of advice to you is, given the long list of celebrated clients who are coming through the door, check that printer for books. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, one thing I would say, just to answer that final question, was when I was doing the Cash for Honours case, I was really concerned, as I've touched upon, about why, how things were getting into the press. And certainly when phone hacking came, I fed my own mobile number into the phone hacking. I was not, they didn't have it unless somebody cleverer than me knew and wouldn't yeah. to tell me. But I arranged for my telephone to be swept and I arranged to have a, And the only time it was any difficulty was one day I was going home at night um, and as I was going down the cul-de-sac, I saw two men come out of the uh, garden and they came out to me and said, are you Mr. Shamash? I said, yes. He said, is it right that Tony Blair is going to be interviewed by the police tomorrow morning? I said, what are you talking about? Of course I'm not going to be able to tell no comment at all. So I went inside the into the house and my then 15-year-old daughter came to the door and let me in. Daddy, Daddy, she said, there were two men wanted to talk to you. I gave them your mobile phone number. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Kate, bless you, don't ever do that again. Just, I don't know where he is. I can't give any information, all the rest of it. Wow. And uh, that was the end of that. And uh, you know, that, that's on record. That yeah. It was interviewed. But I mean, that's the, you know, that's the end of that. Oh. And nothing came of it. And, and they completely misunderstood about the whole role of, of how people appointed as peers. Mm. And it was a very difficult time for Tony Blair. It really mm. was. 
and it was a very unfair time as well. Mm. But I personally, think. well, well, you've spoken out to a few people to appeal to uh, as clients. We'll appeal again to Tony Blair. He's more than welcome to join us at any time, yes, and we'll, yes. we'll we'll verify that story. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Pleasure. Thank you very much. The hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.